Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name's Kenny, and I'm the lead pastor here at Revolution, and I have a lot of talking to do tonight. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Claire, for talking at the beginning, and Sarah for talking there in the middle, because I'm talking to you now, and then we're going to eat some pizza, which is my bribe for you to like continue to listen to me as I talk more. And I'm nervous. Like Honestly, I'm very nervous about all of this talking. Um, and when I'm nervous, I talk forever, so that's what we write things down for. So I'm going to stick to the things that I've written. My, my daughter like, has really just decided to hammer me about this like every week. Um, all right. It is good to be with you again tonight. Um, and it's good to be with you as we are continuing tonight in our summer storytelling series on the life of Samuel. Last week, we kicked this series off by reminding ourselves what we get up to with our teaching times over the summer months, which is say what I mean when I say summer storytelling. Specifically, what we do is we, we talked about our last week, we talked about this routine we've created of using these weeks during the summer, which can be a bit more scattered for folks as people are in and out of church on vacations, and, and take a break from our normal sort of course of curriculum here, which are, which are teaching series that have these single overarching narratives. We're trying to like cover a particular set of ground and work through a particular idea week after week, and instead work through some of the stories of the Old Testament using a single overarching approach. So not the narrative, but the same approach. And here's what our approach during these summer series is. We do our best to look at the stories of the Old Testament, of Scripture, of the Bible, as sacred, which is to say as stories which have revealed to the people of God for thousands of years now important lessons about God and not just about Him, but how we are meant to live in relationship to Him and with Him. And this year, as that title slide behind me suggests, our stories that we're going to be looking at over the course of the summer are focused on the life of Samuel. And Samuel was a pivotal figure in the Israelites' past. He was the last of the nation's judges, who were the sporadic leaders of Israel in the wake of Moses' death during this transition period in their story to the promised land of Canaan. And he's also the chief priest who's going to ultimately anoint Israel's very first king. When I say transitional figure, I mean it. He's the last of the judges, and he's the one who anoints the first king. And those are these two sort of stages of governance in Israel's story. Now, last week, we started looking at Samuel by looking at his origin story, um, specifically the story of his mother, Hannah, and then the story of the man who raised Samuel, the chief priest at the time, named Eli. And we said that the key thing that Samuel learns in his early life is that we are most closely aligned with our Creator when we mirror our Creator's commitment to listening to His people with compassion. Listening to His people with compassion. And that this lesson ends up being the central lesson to Samuel's own story as it unfolds. And we're going to keep exploring the impact of that lesson in the story from tonight. So, how to begin? How do we get into what's ultimately like a four-chapter chunk of Samuel's story? Well, I'd like to start by drawing what I hope will be a helpful contrast for us. Have you ever heard the expression, what have you done for me lately? Right? Some of you are thinking it right now. What have you done for me lately? 
I tried to track down the origin of that expression. If you know me at all, you know that like there's no way I can bring up a word or an expression and not at least like give a quick Google to where it came from. And I gotta tell you, struck out. No idea where we where that came from. But I think we can still probably come to some agreement about what it means. What do we use that expression to mean? What have you done for me lately? Somebody tell me. What does it mean? You can actually talk. I, we're a little church. No. <laughs> It's a disappointment. You guys are cheating because you know I wrote down an answer and you're just waiting me out. It's all about me, right? Yeah, so that's the subtext, right? And it expresses a kind of disappointment. I guess, yeah, I would, I would summarize. It's a bit like an indictment to some degree, right? Like it's a way of saying a friend who isn't routinely a friend isn't a friend, right? To some degree. So I want you to hold that expression in one hand. It could be your left or right. I'm not going to judge. But yeah, what have you done for me lately? And now I want you to prepare to take a little bit of a jump with me to the, to the second, with your second hand. Have any of you been following the news over the past three or past few weeks about the James Webb Space Telescope? I am so happy about the number of nods. So some of the first images of this, from this telescope were released two weeks ago, and they're incredible. I like Google grabbed one of them for you here. Now, in the first draft of this sermon, I got to tell you, I spent a shockingly long amount of time rambling about this telescope, like a very long time. But for your sake, I've cut all of that. What matters, I think, is, is this. What makes this telescope, and really what makes all telescopes so interesting, is that telescopes are time machines. Telescopes are time machines. Because, right, we know that light takes time to get from one place to another. And so when a telescope is looking at things that are far, far away, we see them not as they presently are, but as they were when the light that we're now seeing was first emitted from them. So when a telescope's looking at something that's a thousand light years away, what we're seeing is, is in real time is what happened there a thousand years ago. And the Webb telescope, as you probably have read, it's capable of picking up light that was emitted from its source 13.7 billion years ago. Which means that these pictures that we're looking at aren't showing us how things are out there. These pictures are showing us how things were once upon a time. So you remember the thing in your one hand, right? What have you done for me lately? Well, here's what I want you to put in the other hand. What has ever been done? Or to be more catchy, what all have you done for me? The tension between these two things, which we might phrase as the recent and the record, or the overall record, that tension is at the center of Israel's story in the Promised Land. It's at the center of Samuel's story. I said at the beginning that Samuel was Israel's last judge, and here's what that word means if you're not familiar with it. The judges of Israel were not judges in the way that we might think of that term. Rather, you might think of them as kind of like tribal heroes. Whenever Israel would wander from their relationship with God, they would inevitably fall into some conflict or another with their neighbors, and sometimes those conflicts were bloody and they were costly and they led to, to suffering for Israel. And that suffering would lead the people to cry out to their God in distress. What have you done for me lately? You can imagine them saying. And in response, 
God over and over again would raise up these figures called judges to deliver them from that oppression. Now, many of the judges in the Bible's story have names that you might know. Samson was a judge, if you've heard that name. So were Deborah and Gideon and a whole host of others. But what stands out about this time in Israel's story, the time of the judges, is that none of these rescues that the judges carried out ever led to repentance. It didn't lead to repentance. The people never changed. They took the things that God gave them at the moment, and then they went on their way and continued to live as they had lived before. Now, one reason for this is because, as it turns out, the call to repentance is technically somebody else's job in ancient Israel. It's not the judge's job. In this same window of time, when Israel would be occasionally delivered by judges, the nation still had this other group of leaders called priests. They had a priesthood that was descended down from their patriarchs, from their oldest ancestors. And this priesthood was responsible for interceding on the behalf of the people with their God. They offered sacrifices for sins, and they were meant to be keepers of Israel's story. They were... They were the voice, if you want to think of it, in those, those two hands we had at the beginning. They were the voice of the record, or at least they were supposed to be. They were the voice that asks or answers, what all have you done for me? But as we saw last week, the priesthood by Samuel's time had fallen into corruption and into disarray. So the backdrop for Samuel's story is this dysfunction for centuries in both of these spheres. The judges are these inadequate rescuers, and the priests have been inadequate re record keepers. And so as Samuel's life kind of begins, and his ministry, and as his work begins, what happens, right? What happens now? Well, during Samuel's youth, the big enemies of Israel are the Philistines. They're the, they're the famous enemies. You've heard the Philistines' name. They're like... They're the cool ones. I don't know if that's true. But they're, they, what they are is they're Israel's neighbors to the west. They're between Israel and the sea. And, the, and in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites um, are in this ongoing conflict with the Philistines, and they lose in a battle. They lose their most prized possession, which is the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that they keep the remnants of the, of the Ten Commandments in. The Philistines... Um, have taken it from them because they, they did this, we won't get into it, but they did this like colossally arrogant and foolish thing. Like they took it into battle, like it was just going to magically win for them, and then they lost, and the Philistines took it. But once the Philistines have this ark and this great defeat and this great embarrassment for Israel, once the Philistines have it and they take it back to their land, it does this crazy thing and it lays supernatural waste to their whole like region. It destroys the God in their temple and then it afflicts all the people that are around it with these terrible sores. And so eager to be rid of it, this thing that they got that was this big treasure, but now it's turned out to be bad news, in order to get rid of it, they, there's this episode where the Philistines send it back to Israel by just hitching it to these two cows and then just sending the cows east down a hill. Like, just go. It's, I'm serious. You should look this part up. It's funny, except there's a lot of dead people involved in it, so that makes it less funny. But, like, the general scene of just, like, get on out of here is, like, a good, it's good for a laugh in, the, in 1 Samuel. But the point is that the ark, the ark makes its way back to Israel. And then once it gets there, the people do the thing they do. They rejoice. They're very happy in the moment. 
And they even enter into one of these phases where they say that they're going to turn back to the Lord out of gratitude. He's done this miraculous thing. He's brought the ark back to them. They're sorry, and they're going to like turn back to him. But this is the thing. If you've been reading through Israel's story, this is nobody's first rodeo, right? Everybody has seen this cycle of deliverance and then rejoicing and then empty promises and then regression before. However, this time, this time, into that fray, into that tension, steps Samuel. And Samuel is the first person in Israel's story to be both of the things. He is both judge, because God has raised him up, and he is also priest, because he was raised by Eli. And here's what Samuel says. Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, he may rescue us from the hands of the Philistines. And then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. So, what does this long story of Samuel teach us? Uh, The kind of leadership that God is looking for, the kind of behavior he's looking for from his people. What does it mean for Samuel to combine those two roles, right, of judge and priest. And if Israel's core problem during this whole period is their preoccupation with that question, what have you done for me lately? How do we see Samuel trying to shift their perspective to one less prone to grievance and a bit more like a web space telescope? 
I think here's what we see. The priest part of Samuel calls the nation to repentance. And this story here helps us to see exactly what that means. And there are three distinct steps in this story that we can learn from. Now, first, Samuel challenges the people to admit that they are idolaters, which is to say, to admit that they weren't trusting God in the first place, and that maybe, like just maybe, not trusting God has even played a part in their suffering. He doesn't ask them, like, does anyone have any foreign idols that you haven't told anybody about? He just flat out knows it, and he says it. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, which means they have to acknowledge that their hearts have wandered. You can't return to a place that you haven't left from yet. And it would be difficult, right, for him to say that, especially when they're approaching him to, to presumably intercede, to like fix their relationship. So he challenges them. He, he forces them to admit that they have already wandered. So that's step one, right? You have to admit your idolatry. And that sounds easy, or maybe it just sounds weird, right? Like, what does it mean to us to admit our idolatry? Well, I think like them, we have to admit that at some point in our past, there has been a time when our trust and our heart have shifted away from God, and that maybe like we're still in that time. And then once you've done that, once you've acknowledged that you've wandered, that your trust isn't fully with your God, then Samuel tells them what to do, right? He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of those foreign gods and those asterisks. Now, like I said a minute ago, most of us, I'm assuming, I'm not, I mean, I guess like I could potentially have like a prophetic gift or something. I'm under the assumption right now, none of you have asterisk poles like in your backyard or any of that. But the point is, the point is when he says to get rid of these things, the point is, is that there has to be real action on Israel's part in order for there to be any change. He can't let them just get away with making like empty words and promises as they've done before. They can't just say, our hearts aren't in those asterisk poles and worshiping those foreign gods anymore. He's saying, you gotta get rid of it. If anybody here, and I bet at least half of the people in this room, if any of you here have ever worked to break an addiction, like you know exactly how this step works, right? You can't just say, I'm not going to drink anymore. You have to get rid of what you've got, too. And also do things to make sure you can't get it again. You've got to take steps to keep those things away. And why is that? Why is that? Because the hard truth, the hard truth is this. The hard truth is that you're just not strong enough, consistently enough, to stay clean on your own. Like you're just not. We wanna believe that like, if I really put my mind to it, if I really like focus in and just like, I'm never gonna do this thing again, I won't. And that'll work when you're focused and that'll work like when you're committed, when you have energy and you're, you know, when you're awake, <laughs> like when you're, when you're geared up for it, but you can't stay in that spot all the time. You're gonna get tired, you're gonna wear down, and when you do, you're gonna crack and you're gonna crumble because those other things are your safety and you've, that's, like, that's when you need them. You have to not just say, I'm gonna get rid, I'm gonna change. You have to actually take steps to take the things that are tempting to you and put them away from you, to put the idols away. And then Samuel says, okay, so 
If you're serious about returning to the Lord, you have to admit that you haven't been with him. You have to actually take the physical step, the real action step of putting the things away. And then Samuel says this third thing. He says, commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. Now here's the thing about the Israelites' idolatry. And this is something that I think the story of Samuel will keep making clear to us in the weeks ahead. The Israelites didn't worship foreign gods because they believed those gods were greater, more powerful than their own God. That's not why they did it. They worshiped those gods because that was the local custom where they were living and it was a way of fitting in. They worshiped them also because their own God hadn't done anything for them lately. And you might as well cover all your bases, right? Like, sure, God once delivered us from slavery in Egypt, but there are other gods that like, might make it rain tomorrow, and that would also be helpful. So what's the difference? But the problem, the problem with this way of thinking, which I think is often, if we're honest, our own way of thinking too, is that you're not actually putting your trust in other gods over the God. What you're really doing is you're putting your trust in yourself. You're not diving into another faith with your whole, with like some deep level of commitment. What you're doing is you're withdrawing to what feels like a safe distance from your own faith. And you're saying, really, all of this stuff is only good if it does good stuff for me if it's helping me out. So I'm going to take a step back. I'm not going to get too crazy. I'm going to cover my bases. I'm going to check a few extra boxes around the edges. I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to wait and see if my life is better. The idol, here's the thing. The idol of our idolatry is always, always ourselves. Because it's hard to let go of control, especially if you aren't doing the work of looking at your own patterns, and you're not doing the work of looking at your own history. So for the sake of our list on the board that's showing up behind me here, step three of repentance is this, trusting God over ourselves. And it sounds easy. It's the thing we say all the time in church, but I'm challenging you tonight to actually think about how hard that is and what that means, to trust God over ourselves. But at this point in the story, we're also actually at this intersection of Samuel's roles. Because if those three steps have to do with what it means for him to be a good priest, they can't help but lead us into what makes Samuel a good judge too. And that's his willingness to let God use him to intercede in Israel's story. In the past, and this is notable, in the past, how did the judges intercede? Well, they did this mostly, almost exclusively, through military victories of one way, of one type or another. And in this story, we have a military victory, right? The Philistines get defeated. And how does that happen? Well, things start pretty bad, right? Samuel calls all the people together in this one place to do all these priestly things that we just discussed to walk them through that process of repentance. But cunningly, their enemies, as soon as they hear that all of their other, like all of their nemeses are like all gathered in one place, focused on something else, focused on their God, they see an opportunity to catch them off guard and, and they set out to invade, right? But then I think this is the most interesting part of the story because the Israelites catch wind of that invasion coming and then they do the amazing thing that they have not done in their long history with the other judges. And that is they put their money where their mouth is. 
in the midst of repenting, in the midst of confessing their idolatry and turning over their trust to God, they don't say to Samuel, can we time out on this repenting? Go fight. God will deliver us. And then finger, like swear, we swear. We will come right back and we'll finish the repenting. No, they say this. They say, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hands of the Philistines. Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us. And so Samuel, both priest and judge, doesn't leave his priesting to go do the judging. Instead, God, through this well-timed thunderstorm, sets motion sets in motion the events that are going to lead to the people's deliverance. Now, you might be thinking as we cover that, like, that's all well and good, but it sounds, sounds like Samuel's really leaning into the priest gig over the judge gig. Like, he didn't actually do the judging. He just stuck to the priesting. Why doesn't he lead that route of the Philistines? Well, I think the answers, and I think Samuel's exceptionalism show up in verse 12, which reads like this. Then Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. I have to just speak truthfully. I love this verse. I'm fairly confident the reason we're doing this whole series on Samuel this summer is because I was like, man, I've got to do something with that verse. I love it. What does Samuel do for people who are trapped in this endless cycle of asking, what have you done for me lately? What he does is he builds them a web telescope. He asks them to look back over the whole of their story from the beginning until now and ask, what has God done ever? Thus far, the Lord has helped us. When Abraham was homeless and childless, God helped us. When Jacob was in flight from his brother Esau, right, God helped us. When Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, God helped us. When that ended up leading to the people becoming slaves as a nation and suffering under the pharaohs, God helped us. When we wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God helped us. When we came to the promised land, God helped us. The saying attached to the Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has helped us. Can sound a bit cynical, right? Like when you first read it, maybe where your head goes with that is like, thus far, that seems seems a little, you know, you wouldn't want you wouldn't want to say like, I don't know, we don't have to work into like how this works in your marriage or your other relationships. But I'm I'm guessing you're not super pumped if somebody's like, I mean, I've loved you until today. <laughs> thus far. What Samuel does here, the patterns of Israel, the patterns of Israel during this time of the judges was to keep asking about the recent. Samuel's act breaks the cycle by reminding them of the record. It reminds them of the record. If God has always helped us before, what have we learned about him? We have learned that God is faithful to us. That this is what the judges and the priests both exist to proclaim that the people might have hope and they might be able to choose to trust him, to do that thing that priest Samuel just said they all need to do. But what about us, right? 
How do we take that story of Samuel and the Israelites and look at it ourselves? What gets in our way? What leads us to cling so fearfully to our own desire to control things, even when we experience over and over and over again, like any addict does, just how little control we actually have? Why do we convince ourselves that this cycle of just trying our best, even when it's not enough, that that's our only option? Well, I think, I think what we can learn is that we also need the telescope. We need to be able to see not just what's happened lately, we need to be able to see what's happened ever. We need a vantage point that's bigger than ourselves and one that can remind us not what we think telescopes remind us of, which is that we're like small or insignificant, but instead to remind us that we are part of some enormous and amazing story. And it's, it's a story of God, like the God and that we play this little part in it. That connection to the bigger story is what the Ebenezer can do for us. Our temptation so often is to make promises about the future, right? And I think that's the other thing that's weird about this passage and weird about that stone. Our temptation is to make these promises about the future. Even when we read this story, it's easy for us to look at Samuel's Ebenezer and wish that it said something different and maybe even wonder if the translation's a little off, that maybe what it actually says is something closer to God's always going to help us. But here's the thing. Everybody, not just us, but everybody ever, has been wired to be skeptical about predictions and promises about the future. If I say, I'll always be the pastor here at this church. There are a whole bunch of you that wouldn't have thought about it until I say that, but now you're thinking like, mm, actually. When people say that they're always going to love us, many of us like admire the sweetness of the gesture, but we've got doubts, right? We've got those anxious bones inside of us and we have those anxious bones inside of us about these promises about the future because we're projecting our own inconsistencies on the world. And we're assuming that everybody else is pretty much just as loyal or maybe disloyal as we might be. So what if instead of playing into that promises game, really it's a trap, what if instead of making promises about what's ahead, we were to do a better job of looking at the patterns that have come before, the patterns that are behind? And can you see how that habit would offer us even more of a foothold for our confidence than just a promise about the future would give us? When Samuel says, thus far the Lord has helped us, he's not abandoning the Israelites to some chaotic future with like no hope and like nothing to, to lean on or to look forward to. What he's doing is he's trying to anchor these people in a stable past in this long tradition of points that show God's love and that show God's memory and his faithfulness to them and saying like, do you see this line of points that have led all the way to the point where you're standing? Don't you think that's what would come next? Don't you think that's where we're headed? You don't need that promise about a future if you have that kind of anchoring story behind you. Which means, I think, that our challenge tonight, which is an unusual challenge for a church and a non-denominational church on top of that, but like, our challenge is not to make some big promise or big story about our future. Our challenge is to look backwards, even if we're struggling for hope now. Have we seen our God in the past of our stories? Can we track 
God's goodness towards us over time. And if we look not just at our couple of dots of our life, but if we look beyond our experiences at all of the dots of everybody's life, can we see this bigger story emerging behind us of God's love and his provision for his creation? When this is hardest for us, when it's hardest for us to see beyond our own story, when it's hardest for us to trust that there's anything good ahead for us, it's in those moments that I think the stories of Scripture can be our biggest help. It makes it worth looking at these Old Testament passages and trying to see those dots that track out behind us and just how straight and consistent they've been. And then after we do that, after we line ourselves up with our past, that's the moment when we benefit from raising that Ebenezer from doing what Samuel has done. We can build a monument that reminds us that thus far, the Lord has helped us. Your Ebenezer in your own life can be a lot of things, right? It can be a note on your mirror reminding you that thus far, the Lord has helped you. It can be a prayer every morning that reminding yourself that thus far, the Lord has helped you. Heck, you can get this like as a vinyl decal on the back of your car for all I care. Like whatever it is, what matters is that we're finding ways to not always just be looking at what the future might hold, but reminding ourselves deliberately of the story that's trailing behind us of God's love and his provision for his people. And that anchors us and grounds us. That's what an Ebenezer can be. And so my closing little bit here is to say, I want you to invest in that kind of community to keep the memory of God's help fresh, not so that you can always believe that good times are right around the corner, but so you can remember that there is no dark time or place where God has not sought us out before. That even in our moments of, of least repentance and our moments of greatest pride, God has drawn near to us and he has seen us through and that he will not abandon his people. And when we share our stories with each other, in a church like this one, in a community like this one, what we're doing is we're giving ourselves more of those points, more of those anchors and tethers between us and each other and the story of God that can give us the hope, give us the ability to trust and to believe and to do that work that priest Samuel also wants us to do. They call us to repentance. Our God's never going to abandon his people. May we remember that.